Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. So, you know, and then you say, well, do hedge funds return? And then you say, well, what is it? What sort of risks are they really being exposed to? Are they long? You know, a lot of hedge funds are still running long market. Um, and if market crashes, they do badly. They, they're stressed a little bit, I think, because the ones that generate good returns in a sort of uncorrelated way, um, if the equity markets are really doing well, they underperform even if their kind of return quality is different, right? So then then their investors look at them and say, well, how come S&P was up 20% last year and you're up 8% and they sort of feel, well, maybe I should take some market risk and sort of smooth it out. So then have this weird thing happening. Welcome back to The Derivative. I'm your host, Jeff Malik, and looking forward to a bit of a hedge fund three-way here tonight with a manager, a quant analyst investor, and founder of a disruptive multi-strat hedge fund to fund slash overlay slash platform that has brought them all together. Uh, our three guests hail from across the world, and we're excited to get into the nitty-gritty about quant strategies, hedge funds, fintech, and the future of our industry. So welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, uh, so some quick introductions. Uh, joining us today, we have Max Nisman, co-founder and managing member of a short-term systematic trading shop, Linus. Uh, we have Scott Trelor, co-founder of Novicent. Say that again for me, Scott. Yeah, Novicent, Novicent. Novicent, we just learned that I failed in the first two minutes. So co-founder of Novicent and Olivier Dacier, head of applied research at APAC. Uh, so thanks for joining us all over the world, guys. We have Max in California and, and the rest of you are in Singapore, is that correct? Yes. But not together, right? <coughs> together. Uh, no, separate. no. Olivia's in the, the boardroom, I think. Got it. So Scott, I kind of wanted to start with you and uh, have you set the scene, if you would, and mm. lay out how and why the three of you ended up on a podcast together. Uh, kind of the quick origin story for how you three fit together without going into too much of the nitty gritty of your project, but set the scene for us if you could. Yeah, so um, I used to work, I was uh, a sort of portfolio manager and chief risk officer for a fund here in Singapore. We were out trying to raise capital and we found it, you know, extraordinarily difficult. We figured that we could generate sort of better returns, but but capital was very hard to get, particularly from the big uh, pools of capital endowment funds, even the very large family offices. It was sort of flowing more towards safety, towards brand name funds, towards the, the, the big houses. 
and they have a sort of role, but the interesting returns are coming from the smaller managers. So the challenge was how do you actually open up the pipeline between smaller managers and the bigger pools of capital? Excuse me. And sort of technology is a natural way to do that. So a, a platform that allows boutique managers that could be managing anywhere between 20 up to, you know, really up to half a billion dollars in capital, um, allows these managers to connect to a platform using APIs. Uh, we can then select dynamically which of these strategies are generating alpha at the time, construct, put them together dynamically, in other words, a sort of dynamic portfolio allocation to build custom products for investors. So what we're really trying to do is to bring this industry, which to our minds, to my mind, is still operating as if it was the 20th century, right? With spreadsheets and um, PDF reporting and, and um, poor alignment, bring it sort of online and into the 20th century. So, so having this sort of dynamic connection to groups like Max, where instead of a sort of standard fund of funds, we take capital and we give it out, which means the same due diligence processes have to happen regardless. We have to do due diligence on, on 20 of our small managers. We flip it so we take the signals in. And what that means is, you know, what's relevant for us is the ability of Max, people like Max to generate alpha signals. We can then get them executed and uh, constructed into alpha portfolios. But we sort of start to reduce the whole due diligence process. It doesn't take us two years to make a decision. We can run real time risk management online. So that's the sort of bringing the industry into the 20th, 21st century. And so we kind of have investors, so Olivier is, is, is both an investor into the firm, but also an investor into the fund. And Max is one of our sort of, uh, you know, really interesting alpha partners in that, you know, his Linus strategy generates alpha, but it's also uncorrelated to broader markets, to other strategy classes, um, even negatively correlated even tends to outperform in periods of stress. So, so we're trying to construct alpha solutions for medium to sort of bigger investor pools by dynamically combining all these sort of and interesting so, managers like Max. And so you're sort of the glue here of said, hey, I'm, I want to build something where I can get big money access to these niche managers. Max is one of those niche managers. And then Olivier said, hey, I really like what you're doing. I want a part of that both as a uh, kind of an angel investor in the company itself, and then also as an investor in these end strategies. Yes, correct, absolutely. Fair way to sum it up. Yeah, and, and, and sort of awesome. using so, well, platforms and, and some smart machine learning to, to do that, right? Starting to work in with technologies and APIs and connectivity and that sort of thing that, that exists now and exists in other industries, just not so much in finance yet. Yeah, and we'll dig into that a bit. So hmm. with that scene set, let me get into some of the uh, quick bios here. So Max, uh, I'll bring it over to you. First, let's talk about your hat. What do you, what do you got going on there? <laughs> well, kind of double meaning. I mean, I'm, I love math. Uh, that's, that's what I studied. That's what I use every day. Um, but also and for those just, not seeing us on YouTube, he's got the, uh, just a black baseball cap with M A T H 
math and in bold letters on top. Yeah, and then it's also uh, it's it was Andrew Yang, uh, one of the Democratic candidates. Um, I just I liked his approach, with, you know, kind of science numbers based. A technocrat might be something that be interesting to have in office, um, but you know he was he was a f- far way off. But I just love the slogan: "Make America Think Harder." <laughs> yeah, make wait. What was it? What was his pen? Math. Uh, the, so the math stands for "Make America Think Harder." Ah, okay. Yeah. And then so it's a double meaning. Yeah. And then you said you're out in uh, California right now. Yeah, first uh, trip since since the lockdown in NYC uh, in mid March. So we're based out in New York. I typically travel a lot, but yeah, this is the first trip I came back to see my family. I haven't seen them for a while. Got it. And then what's your, uh, so before you were at Linus, what was the quick background? Uh, yeah, I met my business partner, G Lin, at BlackRock in 2010. Uh, we were both portfolio managers. He was running a, a very early form of what we were doing in cash US treasuries. Um, and we kind of hooked up and started thinking about ways to take it into a incentive fee-based product internally, externally. We didn't get started until 2014. It was, it was pretty early in our careers. Prior to that, um, well, at BlackRock, and prior to that, I was doing mortgage-backed securities. So I had started at Merrill Lynch in January of 2008 in mortgage-backed securities research. Ah, great timing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a good market timer. <laughs> mortgage-backed securities, 2008. Managed futures 2014. <laughs> <So> <laughs> my next move, you know, maybe do the opposite. Um, yeah, so so it was at the time before the crash. It was one of the kind of hottest quant products with copula pricing and all this kind of exotic pricing that was being done to price CDOs and mortgage-backed securities, etc. Um, it was interesting when I had gotten out of my graduate school program in math, but it quickly became a Pretty much a distressed credit product where I was reading prospectuses all day and not really doing a whole lot of math. So when 2010, when I met G and he was working on a quant strategy and I was still doing mortgages, I just kind of quickly saw the value in what he was doing and appealed to me because it really went back to my roots in education. I love it. Um, so Olivier, let's bring you into conversation here. Let's uh, give us some quick background, what you're doing now. So, well, I, I started uh, as an investment banker, actually, uh, for the first nine years. Um, I, every company I've, uh, I've worked at has been bought by someone, right? So I've had a similar kind of luck. So I started working for uh, Smith Newcourt. You, I don't know if some of you may remember. It was a uh, British uh, market maker. It got acquired by Merrill Lynch. And then I worked at uh, Nico Securities. It got acquired by Citigroup. And then I worked at... Um, Barra for seven years, got acquired by Morgan Stanley. And then I worked at Axioma for the last 14 years. And last year we were acquired by the Deutsche Borsa Group and merged with their stocks and DAX uh, indices business into what we call uh, Contigo. So uh, I had applied research for Asia Pac at Contigo and I've been you know, in the quant uh, field uh, uh, all my life basically. And Contigo, any relation to the water bottle that we see all over the U.S.? No, no, I guess not. No, it's Contigo with a Q, actually. Yeah, and no, and no relation to Contango in the futures markets. That's right. Contigo and is so, really from the Spanish word together, since it's three companies together in one. I like it. 
and so your quant background, what does that look like? Hardcore programming or on the applied math side? No, I see the programming, that, that, that's, where we, uh, that's where you lost me because when I studied, I had Cobalt and Lotus 1, 2, 3. I didn't even have Excel yet when I, when I went to college. So uh, all my coding you know, practice was useless. <laughs> it's become obsolete. I've learned, I've learned all of my coding on things that don't exist anymore. <laughs> it's like being Atari champion. You know, what, what's that do for you today? Right, right. My wife works for uh, Blue Cross here in Chicago, and they finally figured out they needed a new um, system to, like, run the database of the claims because the, uh, the guy who knew how to run the legacy system started coming into the office with an oxygen tank. And they're yeah. like, all right, we need to move off. I don't remember if it was Lotus or one of those, but there was, there was key man risk there for sure. Yeah. Great. And then, so Olivia, how did you get tied up with Scott and what interested you in, uh, in some of what he was doing? Well, the interest came from two, two different uh, reasons. I mean, the first is I, I work in financial services and the capital markets. So my income is, is highly correlated with capital markets. Uh, and therefore, I, I'd like to find an uncorrelated uh, source of return for my, uh, to invest my savings. Otherwise I'm just doubling up on the same bet. So talking with, with Scott over the years, for the last two years uh, and hearing about what he's doing, um, I thought that was great because looking for the needle in the haystack by myself, you know, I have a full-time job. So finding people like Max from Singapore with a full-time job is very, very difficult. So the ability of um, Novi Science to, to, um, find these needles for me. And instead of me finding one needle every two years, I can just simply buy the box of needles straight from Scott. Uh, that was an instant uh, appeal for me. The, uh, it's always amazing to me how few people in finance understand that concept that they're double or even quadruple leverage. Yeah. Right? And, 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 and you know, I have a lot of quadruple because they've got their, think uh, the same way. their fee yeah, it's crazy because they've got their fee revenue, they've got then their personal exposure, their client's exposure. Mm. So they've got way more exposure than they think. That's right. Let's get into just the hedge fund space in general a little bit. We just put out a blog post a little while ago asking the question, do hedge funds suck? Um, so, sort of tongue in cheek, but when you look at the stats, you know, and of the HFR indices and whatnot, you know, they, they have, they've given, they lost a little bit less in March and April when the market was crank, uh, crashing. But, you know, in 19, they made significantly less than the upside. So it seems if you're just a, a novice investor saying, hey, I want to get into these hedge funds, they look like they make 15% of the upside and capture 80% of the downside, you know, there's not a whole lot to like there. Uh, what has overall th uh, thoughts on that, that picture of hedge funds? Let me jump in. I know Max has some ideas on this. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me jump in first. I mean, I think even this idea of hedge fund, I don't know what that word means, right? Is it a sort of unconstrained yeah, investing style? Is it... Uh, a way to transfer wealth from investors to hedge fund owners, that sort of thing. So, you know, and then you say, well, do hedge funds return? And then you say, well, 
what is it? What sort of risks are they really being exposed to? Are they long? You know, a lot of hedge funds are still running long market, or, um, and if market crashes, they do badly. They they're stressed a little bit, I think, because the ones that generate good returns in a sort of uncorrelated way, um, if the equity markets are really doing well, they underperform, even if their kind of return quality is different, right? So then, then their investors look at them and say, well, how come S&P was up 20% last year and you're up 8%? And they sort of feel, well, maybe I should take some market risk and sort of smooth it out. And so then have this weird thing happening. There's a guy, Bessie Binder, who wrote some stuff about um, uh, how do you, you have, uh, if you go and talk to hedge funds, say, show me your high conviction trades, and you look at the performance of those high conviction trades, they actually do quite well. There's alpha there. But what they've also added to smooth everything out is all these sort of low conviction trades, which strip all the alpha away. And what you're left with is sort of, you know, negligible performance. And they've sort of done that because investors are still kind of return centric, right? They, their ability, and it's a broad generalization for investors, but it's, it's, it's not really untrue. Investors think about returns, but they don't often even in quite sophisticated places, get down to the depth of, okay, what's the sort of quality of returns? What's the sort of risk exposure that I'm having for that return stream? And so from our point of view, you know, we try to think about, well, there's three categories of return. There's return to cash, time value of money. There's return to exposure to various risk premia. And then there's mispricings and dislocations, which is alpha. And, and you know, any sensible investor and slowly, the really leading edge pension funds are starting to kind of come up towards this kind of more structured factor-based approach. But right now, it just feels um, that we're in the midst of just weirdly enormous confusion about what is a hedge fund, what is alpha, what is beta, what is excess return, what is risk, what does it all mean, which is weird, but, but reality. Yeah, but I think to, to my point is you can look at it across different hedge fund categories and it's sort of across the board, mm. you know, and there's a bunch of issues with that, right? You're taking the average, you're not taking the best, you're realizing a lot of the worst when looking at those indices. Um, so yeah, and I we're all yeah, proponents of it. We all are drinking the Kool-Aid, but I'm just, in your dealings with investors, are they believing in the world of hedge funds or not? I, I mean, again, I, think, I understand what yeah. you're saying. It comes back to what is that word? Yeah. So, so yeah, the average is the problem, right? This stream that I want to cross is only two feet deep on average, but halfway down, halfway across, it's twelve feet deep, and I sort of drown because on average yeah, it's yeah. two feet. But but so averages kind of cover a lot of sins. Uh, investors. Um, uh, I think they're, they're getting desperate, right? It feels like, you know, they are sort of what we might call gambling for redemption or sort of punting, uh, almost lottery-like, right? We've, we know that bond yields are very low. We know equity markets look precariously high given, you know, the potential shocks and events, Max's events that exist. 
uh, and so they sort of say, well, well, I just hope I can find some good hedge funds that work. So let me clarify that. Hedge funds on average are going to, I think there's just too much money going to the very big funds and the very big funds cannot deliver any excess returns because they become the market essentially, right? So you know, this, this channeling of funds of you know, hedge funds, three and a half trillion, maybe three trillion now, 80%, um, 90% head towards the very big funds who just deliver some sort of more market-like return. And then the more interesting funds, the half a trillion dollars of, of boutique funds that can deliver the excess returns are a bit hard to find. They can deliver if you can select them, if you can find them, if you can get access to them. You know, we see that in our results. On average, it looks terrible. So you need help. That's, that's the sales pitch. Yeah, I agree. But I think Max, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty cynical about the industry. Um, I think it's pretty much fundamentally broken for probably a number of reasons. Um, I don't think in incentives are correctly aligned. Um, you know, at the end of the day, everybody just wants to keep their job. Um, so not naming names, but there's a lot of people who you could give all your money to and they haven't done well. I don't think that they're going to do well in the future, but you probably won't get fired for it. Um, I think post financial crisis with a lot of the fraud that's been, was uncovered. Um, some of the big, big stuff out there. I think, you know, there's people are shying away from the small managers. They're just a due diligence risk. Um, so yeah, I mean, as Scott said, a lot of the money is just going to the top. Um, but even, even at that point, you know, you'd think that, okay, the top has to just invest in some basic stuff and they are the market then at least they could do a little bit better than the market. I'm always surprised to see pretty much every risk parity portfolio as far back in time as I can look, that's publicly available. I, you know, I don't know about the private funds, but all the guys with mutual funds, et cetera, their benchmark is 60, 40 bonds equities. That's essentially what they're trying to beat. They've all dramatically underperformed it over three years, five years, 10 years. Um, if you look at the fund to fund community, a lot of them have pretty strong factors to most most basic um, factors, you know, equity factor, bond factor, often trend factors. Um, yet they're sharp one maybe. And I'm looking at if you were just to blindly slam together stocks, bonds, and trend, you'd be much higher than sharp one. So it's kind of like, what are you doing wrong? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what all the issues are, but yeah, I, I mean, I've I've kind of created a, a very, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say a very unique, that's not proper. I've created a unique product uncorrelated to really anything out there um, that's been able to deliver alpha over the last six years. Um, but being different is a double-edged sword. I've created something, but it's different. It doesn't check people's boxes. Um, there's a risk of us as a small manager, uh, at least that's a, you know, a perceived risk. So yeah, I, I just think, you know, what people like Scott are doing and, and there's other, there's other people out there. Some of the large, you know, um, large multi-manager kind of potted out shops have certainly figured out this idea of number of uncorrelated returns, return streams, um, combine them together and create a higher sharp product. I like to say diversification is the closest thing that we have in this industry to a free lunch. Um, so some people get it, but surprisingly, it seems like most of the most of the industry doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, think I think if I'm sorry, go ahead, Scott. 
yeah, there's, we think there's kind of a cost and information problem for investors getting through to Max. There's a cost problem, which is, you know, they, they have to go meet Max and team 10 times and do all the due diligence and it takes them a long time to finally decide and they never quite sure from his returns. Um, so it's, it's, it's costly and slow, but it's also information, you know, how do you find Max? And then the analytics around, is his strategy really alpha or is it, you know, just a lucky strategy that delivered something good over a short period. And so there's sort of skills to identify that, you know, are around, but they're not everywhere. It takes a little bit of nuance to figure that out. So, so there's kind of these two obstacles to try to get through to Max. And you might expect the consultants and the sort of allocators to be better at it, but they're under pressure. They're, they're risk resource constrained and time constrained and cover your ass job security incentive constraint. So as we're sort of very consistent with Max, we think the industry really needs new thinking, some new innovative innovative approaches to to break some of this method of operating. And hedge funds worked 20, 30 years ago when hedge funds used to be running hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Now they're running tens of billions of dollars, just excess returns, impossible. Um, it used to be less efficient. So, you know, those good managers, hedge fund managers probably had some information advantages, right? Um, but they could deliver excess returns. There were a few of them around. And now this, the industry has really changed and become different. And this concept of hedge fund, you know, the big AQR, you know, and even he says he's not a hedge fund, right? So these big sort of hedge fund giants just can't deliver returns. Um, so how do we open up the channel for those managers that can? And Olivia, what, what are your thoughts on, right? My, my thoughts are if I'm the big allocator, my issue is I understand that there's maxes out there in the world who can deliver alpha. My problem is if I pick 10 of them, if I get the wrong one, the dispersion is way bigger, right? Between the worst performing one and the best performing one versus if I pick these large guys, the dispersion's really small. So I might not get the best, but I almost guaranteed not to get the worst. Um, how do you look at that from like a quant perspective? So for me, I mean, the, the issue is again, that search for uncorrelated returns, right? So we know there are maxes out there and the, the job doesn't stop at finding them. Okay, you found max. And as you say, okay, now I've got to find another max because what I'd like is a 10 max kind of strategy uh, to basically diversify away my key man risk, okay? Um, but uh, so ongoing, you have to be able to look at these guys and say, okay, is this still working or is it not working? And when I have this other strategy, the dispersion is getting big, but it's going in one direction. Should I start to move together with it. So the amount of work that has to go on managing that pool of, of, of managers is also quite, um, quite onerous. And if like me, you have a full-time job, you'd like to pass that on to someone. Um, what uh, Scott's platform has with, uh, within Novi Science is the ability to, to uh, test those strategies live, ongoing, uh, make changes to the mix dynamically, which 
you know, is something I wouldn't be able to do as an individual. Uh, or, you know, by calling my account manager at the big firm who happens to be, you know, on lockdown right now, so I can't reach him. Um, those kinds of things. So the, the technology comes to my help here because I definitely think, you know, I, I don't think the entire financial services industry is broken because we have people like Max and, Al and others out there. So finding alpha or manufacturing alpha is still uh, working in places. I think the distribution model is definitely broken. And that's what, um, that's what Novi Science does is it brings investors and the alpha generators together in one place. It's like having an entire financial services sector in your pocket, right? That's for me uh, is a key uh, aspect to it. And, and definitely where I think um, the industry is going moving forward, everything is shrinking. Every industry, every sector, every process is shrinking thanks to technology. What uh, Scott has done is just fast forward that. And, and obviously the, the alternative or the hedge fund uh, type of um, segment, it, these guys are early adopters. So that's the best place to start uh, with this kind of platform and to, to, to try to bring investors and alpha generators together in an exchange platform and forego all the other middlemen in, the, in between. That's a good segue into Scott explaining a little bit more of, of what Say it one more time for me, no, Novicient. Novicient. No, Novicient. So tell me one more time what Novicient's secret sauce is, so to speak, right. right? Like there's plenty of platforms out there where you could pick a menu of different hedge funds. There's plenty of fund of funds out there where they're doing the due diligence and, and selecting good managers. Where, where do you see your difference in that spectrum? Right, yeah. So. So we're trying to, we say, we say this, I'm not sure if people kind of get it. Um, sorry, I'll keep repeating it. <coughs> General, no worries. Um, uh, I'll summarize so they get it. Okay. We're trying to bring um, the industry online. So we use a platform model not to help um, an investor find a manager, not a sort of matching platform, I think you need to have a transformation function within the platform, right? Investors don't really say, I want that fund and I want that fund. What they sh really want is a sort of return profile that suits what they need, right? Their existing portfolio that helps kind of complete it and, and add value to it. They're not looking for seven hedge funds, they're looking for some sort of return profile. So, so this idea of a platform that solves some of the cost and search problems, how do we find Max? Let's take counterparty risk and operational due diligence out of the picture. So instead of pushing money out where we have to do that sort of due diligence, we take signals in. So we're just thinking about a sort of signal stream rather than worrying it, we'll lose capital somewhere. Um, having a sort of real-time control in over those signals. So we run real-time risk control. So if any strategy is kind of having problems, we can shut them down instantaneously rather than a month later when I get my PDF from a hedge fund saying you lost 8%. Um, and then we can dynamically construct. So, so essentially the, the, the secret source is the modeling that we do around Max's return streams to identify, um, there's some sort of 
hierarchical Bayesian probabilistic modeling that tries to sort of filter out, okay, is there alpha in this strategy? Um, uh, if so, then we can start to allocate capital to it. How much capital? Well, it depends on the sort of objective function of the investors. So there's some modeling around trying to build the return distribution for the investor. So the kind of two core bits of IP which are enabled by the platform, but are, they are selection based on the existence of alpha and allocation, um, which then combines and so it's distributions. And so it's a little bit opposite of the, or contrast that with the old school model, right? Would be to fly your analysts around the country, around the world, meeting with hedge fund managers, and they're kind of sizing them up, asking yeah. a bunch of due diligence questions that may or may not apply, uh, and just getting a general feeling of if they quote unquote understand the strategy. Um, and then, all, you know, so there's that qualitative piece, and then there's the quantitative piece that many of those are doing. It sounds like you're kind of saying, hey, we just, we're going to discount that qualitative piece a little bit because a lot of it's fluff. And we're going to uh, increase the quantitative piece tenfold and have it really be a big data driven approach. Mm. So if you're a, there's a sort of false positive, false negative thing here, right? If you're a, yeah. a big allocator and you've spent the last 18 months and, and a few hundred thousand dollars investigating this manager, you're, you're really... Uh, you're pot committed in poker parlance, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're in, right? So you're yeah. very scared of making a mistake because you can't really get out the day after. So you're kind of very scared of false positives. In other words, I think they're good. It turns out they're not good. But what that means is you miss a whole lot of, uh, you know, have this false negative problem, right? You reject a whole lot of strategies that potentially were good because you're so scared of of, of getting, putting money into the you wrong know, A ones. lot of their the solutions for a lot of guys is to not take the calls in the first place to avoid getting right. pot committed, to avoid getting too involved. I just won't take those calls so I don't fall in love with the guy or girl. Um, and exactly. And, and if, but, you're, if you're a $100 million manager and maybe you could go to $300 million, uh, all that cost and effort is just not worth it for most consultants yeah. who, who are not going to make many fees from it. So even if the returns are there, the technology doesn't allow you to kind of uh, the economics don't allow you to do it. It's just not worth it, but it should be, right? Technology should allow you to get much more granular to, to filter out the, the really good managers. Let's make some uh, friends or enemies in the industry here. Mm. Consultants, Absolutely. pension and endowment consultants, net positive or net negative for for the clients they serve? What's oh, everybody's thought? Stati statistically, then, they're flat, right? Flat to negative. There's no... When yeah. they do the numbers, the they don't, that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. They don't deliver, they're not selecting the right managers. Um, and they're also na naturally, for job reasons, predisposed to, to allocate because it's simpler and easy to just push your money to the very big funds, right? You keep your job, you, you stay right. in that, that. that center of distribution, right? Rather than some risk that you, you choose the wrong fund. So they're not doing a good job, I would say. Max, what do you reckon? I don't, honestly, I don't know many people out there that are doing a good job. Um, I don't know the numbers for, for the various kind of sectors of, of investments. But I mean, the, the, the really good guys out there seem to be running pretty big multi-strats with uh, a number of different strategies a lar and a large number of, of, of managers. Um, I just think it really comes, 
<laughs> diversification at the end of the day. Um, it, that due diligence work is a lot. I mean, I, I talked to some of these large kind of multi-manager platform, you know, either either allocated out or even internally multi-managers. And it's a lot of resources to do the, do the due diligence and everything. But the diversification model has never been broken. Like that's, that's really what works. Um, and this, yeah, this idea of chasing big managers, chasing pedigree. Um, this is something I hear a lot. So for some reason, I don't know why do we don't qualify as having pedigree? So graduated second in my class out of 600 students at University of California in Berkeley, summa cum laude, double major in mathematics, NYU, financial engineering, master's, one of the best programs. Like, you know, I've worked at the big shops, but people like these kind of rock star names and they, they come and they go pretty quickly in most cases. Um, so yeah, I just, I just think people, uh, most people are just not very well focused on, on what really makes a good investment and what makes a good portfolio um, and, and are probably underperforming. I think most people should just go back to 60-40 bonds, honestly. If they don't want to do the work on finding someone like me, just do 60-40 bonds or 50-50 or something like that and don't touch it. <laughs> just let it sit there. It will grow eventually. I, I would argue that diversification has broken many times, right? It was diversified between 30 stocks in the Dow, you're fine, and then diversify between growth and value, then diversify into foreign, then bonds, then foreign, right? So like every time they get a, although 60-40s hung around for a pretty long time, this might be the final straw on 60-40 with bonds at the zero bound here. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, it cer certainly has a risk. Um, and I, I mean, I'm just kind of saying 60-40 as, you know, an example of something that's been around forever and anybody could essentially implement on a very low fee, you know, buy the Barclays aggregate ETF and the S&P ETF and call it a day. Right. You want to get more diversified and diversified across regions, right. um, you know, or, you know, geo, geos. Um, that's one thing. You could obviously now get pretty, pretty uh, low fee trend products too, which I don't believe is a crisis alpha, but it is an uncorrelated alpha. Um, it's struggled for many years, but it's uncorrelated and you throw that together, um, you know, you have a kind of third, third uncorrelated piece to the story. And then, you know, maybe eventually you start getting into some other things that are, that are not as broadly known to the, the regular investment committee community. But I, I mean, yes, I, I, anything that you say probably eventually will be proved wrong in the, in this world and in finance. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying it's bulletproof, but it seems to seems to work a lot better than everything else I see going on out there. Um, I'm always I'm all for keep then, it simple, stupid. <laughs> keep it simple, and then I would also argue that there's, as we noted, there's three trillion dollars of investor bets on hedge funds that do believe in the in their diversifying powers and that are aren't turned off on it, right? Like yeah. we've kind of made it, or not you guys, but I've kind of made it sound like investors are flooding out of the space in mass but quite the contrary they're they're holding in there quite a bit but uh you know it's it's all about for me uh, knowing that um i have transparency into my personal uh investments so scott will show me how my fund is doing uh daily i can uh, get out of it 
you know, when I, when I want. He is also able to, through the platform, uh, if Max has a bad day, decide that, like, we're going to drop that for the next few days or something until he gets it back, and so on and so forth. So that kind of dynamic process, which I would not be able to do, A, by myself, and B, even if I was able to call Max and he has something like a monthly liquidity, it, it wouldn't help. I would probably be getting out at the wrong time, whereas uh, through Novicent, I can, you know, get out instantly. And actually, I don't have to get out instantly. Scott does that for me, so I like that. Yeah, and I think kind of in my mind around all this is the concept of the, a narrative, right? Like too much of the industry is narrative-based. You know, yeah. the monthly, the quarterly hedge fund letters that are either making up, outright making up stories for why they did this or the market did that, or worse, maybe that they actually believe what they're writing. Um, so it kind of seems we're saying this Novician can kind of cut through all the narrative BS and just mm -hmm. help you understand the true return and risk profile and, and make sure you're comfortable with that and then deliver that for you. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the transparency that comes with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's people make decisions on stories or data, right? And, and right. Max and we, we are trying to shift that towards the data side and away from the story side because the stories are, are often these sort of ex post rationalizations of some gut decision that you made you know that lacks a lot of objectivity and is quite biased so we want and to what scientific saying, industry yeah and in the world the world's hurtling towards that in every endeavor right like hmm. my father-in-law will still be like okay if you're getting over to that side of town go down this road over to here turn left there and i'm like there's a there's an app for that It'll tell me exactly the time and which roads to go on. And he's like, yeah, but that's just guessing, right? That's just, and I'm like, no, it actually pulls in real-time data from all sorts of different sources and tells you the traffic. And he's like, no, that can't be. So it's, we're still a little far ways off, but right. I think the, the more quantity you are, the younger you are, you kind of get this of, hey, the world is moving towards algorithmic decision-making and, and this should be no different. You shouldn't base your investment decisions on Bob's recommendation or right or some other narrative based item. Yeah. So you bring up a good point the, the, the fact is, you know, quants have been around now for 20 years. So 20 years ago, they moved to, you know, data driven decision making. But what we're seeing today is exactly what you described. It's real time data decision making instead of, you know, oh yeah, I've got the annual reports from these guys. I got the quarterly reports. Uh, you know, I, I'll crunch the numbers and, and get some alpha. That's what, you know, uh, BGI and other people, places like that did uh, in the earlier part of this century. But now everything is moving, you know, real time, online, and in, in my hand, in my mobile. Why, why do I have to go to a computer to find out about my investments? Why do I have to, you know, if I had to print out a map from my computer to drive to that place, that, you know, nobody does that today. People right. take their phone with them and the app is with them, the map is with them, and you can even see your car move real time. Um, and they'll, they'll give you changes. So that's, that's where we are right now, but the, the financial industry or the investment industry is still, you know, a couple of possibly decades behind that. And, and that's what we're trying to bring it in. Uh, right, except for the world of Robinhood and a lot of those, you know, there are apps and tools that have that have bridged that gap and are giving real time, but 
Yeah, I would agree for the most part. Institutional investing is for sure not real time. Yeah. A, a year lag at best. Uh, what What about the dangers to that, right? Of like knee jerk reactions, too much information, information overload, right? It's joked that private equity does so well because people can't get out, right? If you, if you, if you did that for a lot of other investment strategies, they would probably perform a lot better. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a risk, but it's uh, but it's there, but it, that's what diversification is about, right? So you have multiple guys who have short-term signals, but you also have some maybe medium-term signals along uh, as well. So you diversify not just across strategies, but across uh, investment horizon as well. Uh, and that gives you some 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 clarity about that. Right? Uh, the knee-jerk reactions again. Um, that's where technology comes in and applying machine learning to whether uh, Max's performance was skill or luck. And if there's skill there, then you stick with it. If it was luck, uh, then obviously you, you you get out once the luck runs out because that's random. It becomes a random signal. But uh, uh, and that's where you know not just getting real-time data, real-time information and the expertise that people like Max have on the supply and demand within their, their, their specific uh, uh, investment universe, but also machine learning techniques to find out what's what. Okay. Worthwhile, just this other quick idea, right? Newer managers, more sophisticated, more you know, perhaps ML-driven managers eventually are finding it harder to raise capital because the allocators just don't know what the hell because there's no on. narrative. There's yeah. no narrative. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They, have, they can't tell a story about their stock picking. They haven't got a sort of three to five year track record. So it's scary to invest in them. They don't really understand what the hell is. It. For us, we think we're a natural partner for these guys because we can bring them on pretty light and quickly. We bring them into a diversified pool. So, you know, with tight risk control. So investors are not exposed to their investment into that machine learning strategy just going wrong and making them look silly. Uh, and also because we can be a bit dynamic and moving them in and out, you know, we can, you know, help them slowly build and grow, you know, to a certain extent, they're our sort of heroes, right? They're the ones we're trying to make successful so that we can be successful. And we think, you know, we're a natural partner for these more high-end strategies to, to get access to the bigger pools of capital eventually the uh, yeah i told a ai driven shop once that they should create an ai model to create a narrative so that they could say <laughs> here's here's why we did what we did this month it, that was all ai driven too but right fit it fit it to the data it's yeah, a good idea <laughs> they do have that problem what do you do when calpers goes why did we lose four percent last month and they just point to the black box and say i don't know the box the box lost it like that, that I think is untenable in this day and age for now. It also seems uh, like that maybe one of the bigger issues is and beyond not having a narrative is that the, the term has just become so hyped. Um, yeah. yeah. It's I, look at the end of the day, machine learning is, is the future. I believe uh, whether you want to call it AI machine learning in a lot of cases, people are just doing statistics, but you're, your output is only as good as your inputs. So um, in Scott's case, if he had 100 not very good managers, his machine learning would find say that they're not very good managers. And if he invested with them in the best portfolio optimization ever, it still would be 
a not so good portfolio because it was bad inputs, bad managers. And in the case of managers themselves yeah. using it, um, I'm sure that there's some people that are doing some pretty cutting edge stuff. I think most of those people probably we don't hear about or you don't have access to, but the majority are putting in the same old inputs that they were already looking at. Um, yeah. the, you know, the CTA spaces, they're putting in technical features. So you, know, you put features into a machine learning model. If you put in a bunch of technical features, some of the things that machine learning does, like picks up discontinuities and nonlinearities and things like that, that you wouldn't maybe discover from a, a basic regression, um, some of that may, may help you out a little bit. But at the end of the day, you're still using the same technical features to make an investment decision. So it's, it's, they're important processes, they're helpful, but unless you come up with a novel idea or a novel data source, you're just gonna get the same old thing out. And that's what a lot of people that I see on the management manager side that claim machine learning are doing. So I think it's just turned people off is that they're, they're really not delivering. Um, and maybe lastly, a lot of the people who seem to be doing something more substantial, um, they had a pretty good story about their abilities. They just went through a period of of this just this compression trade and you know and just this rising equity market and depending on what your look back period is is the model is just going to pick up that that movement at, after a certain point so you saw a lot of the really you know the guys that were were more recognized for their machine learning skills in march just completely fall apart because they they just been lulled into the the beta trade by the um, dip so. yeah well, they probably made it all back now by the, by the momentum. Yeah, um, or by the Fed. <laughs> right. All right, we're going to wrap it up in a little bit and go on to some of your guys' favorites as we end every pod. Um, any last thoughts on Novician or how you guys are involved before we move on? I think it's worthwhile just quickly pointing out, I think Max is absolutely right. If, if you say, how are you going to generate excess returns? There's sort of three things we think you need. You need um, uh, some sort of, you need domain product market knowledge. You need to understand the domain that you're sort of operating in. There's just a lot of people who kind of wander in and, and do not. You need increasingly technical skills, the ability to, to use computers, to, to, to build better models that make better decisions. And then you need this, the, the magic bit, right? The sort of differentiation, whether that's a different set of data or just a really unique way of thinking about how this market is operating. So this combination of a sort of differentiated approach slash data set plus technical skills, plus um, product market domain knowledge. That's our experiences. Those are the three necessary conditions to deliver excess returns, and and many managers, you know, are missing one or more of those. And then you're going to deliver that. And then I was going to ask you, of what does success look like for Novician in terms of assets, in terms of performance? Is there a benchmark for for either? Yeah, sure. We so we we with this diversification, we can take. Uh, strategies that with sharps of one-ish, um, so there's some alpha there, there's some excess return, and build products that are delivering 20 plus percent returns, you know, sharps of two to three, not because the underlines are very scary and high sharp, just because the mechanics of bringing uncorrelated 
excess returns together uh, allows you to, to deliver great products. So the growth story is really we go hitting family offices now, growing through them at the moment. Uh, and we've spoken to a lot of very large institutions from you know Australia's Future Fund to AIG to the big Northern European pension funds. And they are sort of saying that is very interesting. You need to get to a sort of scale. So we continue to keep them updated. And ideally, we're starting to hit the endowment funds and some of the interest in pension funds. You know, in small testing out size next year, but but really we want to revolutionize change, bring this whole at least the alpha part online. So that's a you know half trillion dollar sort of space that can probably grow because there's more inefficiencies when people just can't find them at the moment. So uh, $50 million by the end of the year um, and, you know, a couple of billion after that onwards. There we are, for you, Max. Great. I'm looking forward to it, Scott. Let's end up with some of our favorites. Max, you're a big foodie out here. What's one of your uh, favorite New York restaurants? Oh. I love Tomo for sushi. It's one, it's in uh, kind of Gramercy, or sorry, Greenwich Village, uh, West Village. It's a hole in the wall, but it's been there for 25 years and it gets the best fish ever. And it's reasonably priced. All right, I'll take it. Uh, and Scott, we didn't even touch on this, but you're a big skier. Right, not so much in Singapore. Um, we wander off yeah. to Japan or to Europe a little bit, but I spent, yeah, I did spend after I, I was an engineer and then I decided to, to go ski instructing for about three years. So I spent three years in Austria. Um, Austria, wow. Sitting uh, up on the mountains. Hermann Meyer, what was the Austrian legend? Yeah, yeah. yeah. he was Hermann Meyer. Is that Meyer. him? Yep. Tom so Bob. what what's your favorite ski spot? Oh, I skied all the time in this place, Selimsee, uh in Austria. Um, so it had a sort of a mountain. The village was was just at the bottom. It had a big lake. Um, so pretty in summer and winter. And up the road was a, a was a glacier, so we could actually ski you know, all year round if we if we if we didn't mind avoiding the, the crevasses and the, and things. It's kind of like finance. All right, Max and I will come out to uh, join you for a Japan Japanese ski trip. Yeah, yeah, uh, we should do that. Do Olivier, uh, favorite Singaporean dish? Oh God! Uh, actually, I'm I'm, I'm partial to the I'm partial to the roti prata, which is this this Indian kind of. Uh, bread with curry and you have that for breakfast here which is weird you know nobody thinks about curry for breakfast but here it's a big thing and uh, it's one of my favorite and you can get that anywhere anywhere on the island uh and then and then sticking with you what's your favorite investing book favorite investing book uh i don't think it's been written yet because i've read a lot of them and and every <laughs> time I, every time I, I was like i threw that one away <laughs> because they they keep you know, writing about the past, and and I need to find one that writes yeah. about the future because my money is going to go into the future. So I'm waiting for that one to be written, <laughs> and hopefully Scott right. and I well, will write one at the end. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. The story, the narrative. Um, and then we asked everyone favorite Star Wars character. 
We'll start with you, Scott. Um, uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. I just he's Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah. Perfect. The master. The master. The uh, Max, how about you? Uh, I had to, I had to think about that one. Salacious, uh, Salacious B. Crumb. Salacious Crumb, yeah, the the little guy on Jabba the Hutt's shoulder. I, I laugh a lot. I've been trying to spare you guys with my incessant giggle uh, for the podcast, but I laugh a lot, so his his giggling kind of gets me. The um, I went to the new Disney Star Wars Land late last year before the Corona or whatnot. You can buy the doll of that little guy <laughs> in the uh, new land. So next time I'm there, I'll pick one up for you. Nice. And then Olivier, are, are you a fan of the movies? Do you have a favorite? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would have to say, you know, I uh, I prefer the uh, the machines than the, than the than the actors. So I would I would say the the Millennium Falcon is is my favorite part of that movie. It's it's all beaten up and it gets it keeps getting shot at, but it's still there and it still carries them through. You know, uh, if you exactly. force me to pick a yeah, if you force me to pick up a character, then I'll say R two D two because he's he can fly, right. he can ride, no. he can sing, laugh, play <laughs> videos. And he's been plug into any computer and, and decrypt it in seconds. That's right. He's the man. All right, guys, well, this has been fun. Thanks so much. And best of luck with uh, Novicient and what you guys are doing. Thanks, Thanks for the time. This has been fun. All right, we'll talk to you soon. All right, take care, everybody. episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at RCMAlt.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.